The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Chapter 8 Friday Night. Hello, and thank you for joining Public Domain Playhouse for our rendition of the classic, timeless War of the Worlds by the giant in literature, as well as many other fields, H.G. Wells. If you were with us last time, we actually took a look at uh, some of the tropes that Wells created in literature. Now, these are in science fiction, by and large. He created, virtually out of thin air, invasions from Mars. He created the tropes of the Invisible Man, the War of the Worlds, the Island of Dr. Moreau, and many others, basically writing the book and capturing everybody's attention with Wells's Law, which means you keep everything else ordinary in order to make something incredibly impossible believable, like an invasion from Mars. So Wells was, and is, a giant in literature. Huge. Kind of something that you would expect from somebody who got started as a teacher and worked their way through different types of jobs, but always adding to his education and always making science a priority. Wells also wrote nonfiction, though. His first bestseller nonfiction book was Anticipations of the Reaction of Mechanical and Scientific Progress Upon Human Life and Thought, 1901. When this book was originally serialized in a magazine, it was subtitled An Experiment in Prophecy and is considered to be Wells's most explicitly futuristic work. It offered an immediate political message of the privileged sections of society continuing to bar capable men from other classes from advancement until a war forced the need to employ those most able rather than the traditional upper-class leaders. Wells anticipated what the world would be like in the year 2000, and that book is interesting for both its hits and its misses. On the hit side, we have trains and cars, resulting in the dispersion of populations from cities to suburbs, moral restrictions declining as men and women seek greater sexual freedom, the defeat of German militarism, and the existence of the European Union. But the book also had misses, like he didn't expect successful aircraft before 1950 and averred that my imagination refuses to see any sort of submarine doing anything but suffocate its crew and founder at sea. So he didn't think submarines were going to be a thing. Wells' best-selling two-volume work was The Outline of History, published in 1920. This began a new era of popularized world history. So he blazed trails in nonfiction as well. The outline of history received mixed critical responses from professional historians, but people loved it, and it made Wells a very rich man. Many other authors followed along with outlines on their own subjects. Wells reprised this outline format in 1922 with a much shorter popular work, A Short History of the World, a history book which was actually praised by Albert Einstein. And there were two other long efforts, The Science of Life in 1930, written with his son, G.P. Wells, and evolutionary biologist Julian Huxley, and The Work, Wealth, and Happiness of Mankind, published in 1931. 
these outlines became sufficiently common for a popular author like James Thurber to parody the trend in his humorous essay, An Outline of Scientists. Indeed, Wells's outline of history remains in print today, had a new edition published in 2005, and A Short History of the World was re-edited in 2006. Wells was an interesting optimist, and quite early on in his career he sought a better way to organize society, and he wrote a number of utopian novels. The first of these was a modern utopia published in 1905, and it shows a worldwide utopia with no imports but meteorites and no exports at all. Two travelers from our world fall into its alternate history. His other utopian novels usually begin with the world rushing to catastrophe until the people realize a better way of living, whether it's by mysterious gases from a comet causing people to behave rationally and abandoning a European war, as in his book In the Days of the Comet, published in 1906, or whether it's a World Council of Scientists taking over, as in The Shape of Things to Come, published in 1933, which he later adapted for the 1936 Alexander Korda film, Things to Come. That movie depicted all too accurately the impending world war, with cities being destroyed by aerial bombs. Wells also portrayed the rise of fascist dictators in The Autocracy of Mr. Parham, published in 1930, and The Holy Terror, published in 1939. Men Like Gods, published in 1923, is also another utopian novel by Wells. In this period, he was regarded an enormously influential figure. The critic Malcolm Cowley stated, By the time Wells was 40, his influence was wider than any other living English writer. It should be noted that not all of his scientific novels end up in a utopia. He also wrote dystopian novels as well. When the Sleeper Wakes in 1899, an early novel for him, which was rewritten later on as The Sleeper Awakes in 1910. The Sleeper Awake pictures a future society where the classes have become more and more separated, leading to a revolt of the masses against the rulers. And the island of Dr. Moreau is even darker. The narrator was trapped on the island in that story, and the animals were vivisected, which means they were stitched half and half with human beings. Unsuccessfully, it might be added. When the narrator eventually returns back to England, though, like Gulliver on his travels from the Wynnums, he finds himself unable to shake off perceptions that his fellow human beings are barely civilized beasts, slowly reverting to their animal nature. A poignant comment on humans under duress that we see even today, you know? A lot of this can kind of be correlated to pandemic kind of feelings, too. Prior to 1933, Wells's books were widely read in Germany and Austria, and most of his science fiction works have been translated shortly after publication, but in 1933, he had attracted the attention of German officials because of his criticism of the political situation in Germany. And on May 10th, 1933, Wells's books were burned by the Nazi youth in Berlin's Opernplatz and his works were banned from libraries and bookstores. 
Wells was president of Penn International, which stands for Poets, Essayists, and Novelists. He angered the Nazis even more by overseeing the expulsion of the German Penn Club from the international body in 1934, following the German Penn's refusal to admit non-Aryan writers to its membership. At a Penn conference in Ragusa, Wells refused to yield to Nazi sympathizers, who demanded that the exiled author Ernst Toller be prevented from speaking. Near the end of World War II, Allied forces discovered that the SS had compiled a list of people slated for immediate arrest during the invasion of Britain in the abandoned Operation Sea Lion, with Wells included in the alphabetical list of the Black Book. Wells was a very interesting character. He was a pacifist, but he ended up wanting to find a more structured way to play war games. He wrote a book called Floor Games in 1911, followed by Little Wars in 1913. This set the rules of fighting battles with toy soldiers. Little Wars is recognized today as the first recreational war game, and Wells is regarded by gamers and hobbyists as the father of miniature wargaming. A pacifist prior to the First World War, Wells stated, How much better is this amiable miniature war than the real thing? According to Wells, the idea of the game developed when he had a friend visit, Jerome Jerome. And after dinner, Jerome, I don't know if that's Mr. Jerome or just friendly old Jerome. After dinner, Jerome began shooting down toy soldiers with a toy cannon, and Wells joined in to compete. August 1914, immediately after the outbreak of the First World War, Wells published a number of articles in London newspapers that subsequently appeared as a book entitled The War That Will End War. Wells blamed the Central Powers for coming to war and argued that only the defeat of the German militarism could bring about an end to war. Wells used the shorter form of the phrase, the war to end war, in In the Fourth Year, published 1918, in which he noted that the phrase got into circulation in the second half of 1914. In fact, it had become one of the most common catchphrases of the war. In 1918, Wells worked for the British War Propaganda Bureau, also called Wellington House, Wells was also one of 53 leading British authors, a number that included Rudyard Kipling, Thomas Hardy, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who signed their names to the Author's Declaration. It was a manifesto that declared that the German invasion of Belgium had been a brutal crime, and that Britain could not, without dishonor, have refused to take part in the present war. If you join us next time for Chapter 9, I will discuss a little bit about how Wells traveled to Russia and kind of take a look at the final years of his life as well. But for tonight, we're getting on with War of the Worlds, Chapter 8, Friday Night. But before we get into our story tonight, let's go ahead and take a quick look back at what happened in Chapter 7, How I Reached Home. If you recall, if you were with us last time, the narrator ran till he couldn't run anymore, and he finally comes to a rest and finds that he's not terrified anymore somehow. He said, my terror had fallen from me like a garment, and so did his hat. It fell like a garment too, because it actually is a garment. 
So what happened at Horsell Common now seems just like a dream to the narrator. So he wanders home noticing ordinary things like a train. And then he stops to chat with a group of people who don't see what all the fuss is about, and that annoys him. So if you're keeping track at home, you notice that in two pages, the narrator has gone from terrified to considering what he saw to be a dream, to being annoyed that people aren't taking the Martians seriously enough. The narrator himself points out that he's a man of exceptional moods. But we might say, of exceptional mood swings. The narrator arrives home and tells his wife about the Martians, and she becomes extremely nervous. Oh dear, they might break the good china. Now, you might think that's the exact reaction that our narrator wanted, considering that the group of people that he talked to just before he reached home annoyed him for not being more concerned. But no, now all he wants to do is assure his wife that they're going to be safe, so to do this, he points out that the Martians are weak and can't get out of the pit because Earth has a much higher gravity than Mars. Looking back at the invasion, the narrator tells us that he missed a couple of points about that. Number one, Earth air has more oxygen, which is invigorating. And two, the Martians are mechanical geniuses and can build machines to do the lifting for them. But the narrator doesn't realize these things at the moment, and he enjoys his dinner secure in the thought that humans can kill the Martians whenever they want with a strategically placed shell. He then compares himself to a dodo bird. So some respectable dodo might have lorded it in his nest and discussed the arrival of that ship full of pitiless sailors in want of animal food. We will peck them to death tomorrow, my dear. Now that's a nice cap to a chapter full of extraordinary mood swings. So now it's time to get on with our story tonight, Chapter 8, Friday Night. I don't know about over in Horsell Common in England, whether or not they do things as wildly on Friday night as we like to when there's not a pandemic raging, because I know that he's probably heading back to the pit to challenge the Martians to a dance-off and perhaps that is what the Martians' heat ray was all about the entire time. They're just welding a big disco ball, and they're going to challenge the Earthlings to a breakdance competition for the planet. It all rides on this. So let's get on with Chapter 8. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm Bart, your narrator and guide. I like to read to people, and I like to make it sound like I'm blowing things up. So thank you for joining me. I appreciate you being here. So let's get on with chapter eight, shall we? Testing, testing, one, two, three. I don't know if anybody can hear me. The Martians have been attacking all night and they're very good at disco dancing. Chapter eight, Friday night. Chapter eight, Friday night. The most extraordinary thing to my mind, of all the strange and wonderful things that happened upon that Friday, was the dovetailing of the commonplace habits of our social order, with the first beginnings of the series of events that was to topple that social order headlong. If on Friday night you had taken a pair of compasses and drawn a circle with a radius of five miles round the Woking sand pits, 
I doubt if you would have had one human being outside it, unless it were some relation of Stent, or of the three or four cyclists, or London people lying dead on the common, whose emotions or habits were at all affected by the newcomers. Many people had heard of the cylinder, of course, and talked about it in their leisure, but it certainly did not make the sensation that an ultimatum to Germany would have done. In London that night, poor Henderson's telegram describing the gradual unscrewing of the shot was judged to be a canard, and his evening paper, after wiring for authentication from him and receiving no reply, the man was killed, decided not to print a special edition. Even within the five-mile circle, the great majority of people were inert. I have already described the behavior of the men and women to whom I spoke. All over the district, people were dining and supping. Working men were gardening after the labors of the day. Children were being put to bed. Young people were wandering through the lanes lovemaking. Students sat over their books. Maybe there was a murmur in the village streets, a novel and dominant topic in the public houses, and here and there a messenger or even an eyewitness of the later occurrences caused a whirl of excitement, a shouting, and a running to and fro. But for the most part, the daily routine of working, eating, drinking, sleeping went on as it had done for countless years as though no planet Mars existed in the sky. Even at Woking Station in Horsell and Chotham, that was the case. In Woking Junction, until a late hour, trains were stopping and going on. Others were shunting on the sidings. Passengers were alighting and waiting, and everything was proceeding in the most ordinary way. A boy from the town, trenching on Smith's Monopoly, was selling papers with the afternoon's news. The ringing impact of trucks. The sharp whistle of the engines from the junction. Mingled with their shouts of men from Mars. Excited men came into the station about nine o'clock with incredible tidings. And caused no more disturbance than drunkards might have done. People rattling London words peered into the darkness outside the carriage windows and saw only a rare, flickering, vanishing spark dance up from the direction of Horsell, a red glow and a thin veil of smoke driving across the stars, and thought that nothing more serious than a heath fire was happening. It was only around the edge of the common that any disturbance was perceptible. There were half a dozen villas burning on the Woking border. There were lights in all the houses on the common side of the three villages, and the people there kept awake till dawn. A curious crowd lingered restlessly, people coming and going, but the crowd remaining, both on the Chotham and Horsell bridges. One or two adventurous souls, it was afterwards found, went into the darkness and crawled quite near the Martians. But they never returned. For now and again, a light ray, like a beam of a warship's searchlight, swept the common, and the heat ray was ready to follow. Save for such, 
That big area of common was silent and desolate, and the charred bodies lay about on it all night under the stars, and all the next day. A noise of hammering from the pit was heard by many people. So there you have the state of things on Friday night. In the center, sticking into the skin of our old planet Earth like a poisoned dart, was the cylinder. But the poison was scarcely working yet. Around it was a patch of silent common, smoldering in places, and with a few dark, dimly seen objects lying in contorted attitudes here and there. Here and there was a burning bush or tree. Beyond was a fringe of excitement, and farther than that fringe, the inflammation had not crept as yet. In the rest of the world, the stream of life still flowed as it had flowed for immemorial years. The fever of war that would presently clog vein and artery, deaden nerve and destroy brain, had still to develop. All night long, the Martians were hammering and stirring, sleepless, indefatigable, at work upon the machines they were making ready, and ever and again a puff of greenish-white smoke whirled up to the starlit sky. About eleven, a company of soldiers came through Horsel and deployed along the edge of the common to form a cordon. Later, a second company marched through Chotham to deploy on the north side of the common. Several officers from the Inkerman barracks had been on the common earlier in the day, and one, Major Eden, was reported to be missing. The colonel of the regiment came to the Chotham Bridge and was busy questioning the crowd at midnight. The military authorities were certainly alive to the seriousness of the business. About eleven, the next morning's papers were able to say a squadron of hussars, two maxims, and about four hundred men of the Cardigan Regiment started from Aldershot. A few seconds after midnight, the crowd in the Chertsey Road, woking, saw a star fall from heaven into the pine woods to the northwest. It had a greenish color and caused a silent brightness like summer lightning. This was the second cylinder. And there you have it for Chapter 8, Friday Night. If the Martians are working on that disco ball, we're not going to see it until the next chapter. Who knows what's going to happen in Chapter 9? Oh, the fighting begins. I guess we know what's going to happen. It sounds like it's going to be a pretty exciting time, but maybe it's a metaphorical fight, like a, a dance-off. I'm still hoping for a dance-off. I'm still hoping for a peaceful resolution. I'm not so sure, though, considering this is... The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Thank you for joining me here on Public Domain Playhouse. I'm Bart, your guide, saying thank you for being here. Join us next time for Chapter 9, The Fighting Begins, and we'll see what gets down. And from Public Domain Playhouse, as always, we'll see you in the next chapter.